try and remember to pop that back afterwards. Good to be with you again. Uh, great to be here this evening, sharing around God's Word together, listening for Him. I was going to begin by asking you if you could think of someone who has been particularly significant in your life for the way in which you have experienced love and kindness and affection from them. I'm going to take the gadget in case I need it for clicking on a few slides. I've only got a couple of slides. But the, the one person you can think of uh, who, whether you've made wise decisions or unwise decisions, whether you've got it right or whether you've got it wrong, still loved you, still affirmed you, still been with you, respected the decisions that you've made, even when they haven't agreed with them or thought you, you were making the wrong decision, but still you felt that affection from them, particularly in moments when you feel you least deserve it, but just the kind of nature that they had to show you kindness and affection and love. If you can think of someone like that who's been like that for you, because we all need love. We all very much need to be loved. Is there someone you can think of who's like that? could be a gran. It could be a papa. It could be a mom or a dad, a brother, a sister, a husband, a wife, or a friend. And while you're thinking about that, here's a harder question. Is there somebody who might think of you that way? That you've actually been like that for them? turning it around. It's easier to answer perhaps the first question than the second question because I don't think we're self-aware enough, and even if we were, we wouldn't go there in our heads. We wouldn't imagine that perhaps we could have been or could be that kind of person for someone else, but I would hope that somebody might think of us in that way, at least as Christian believers, if we're reflecting something of the love of God and have opened up our hearts enough to the grace and love of God to be transformed to that degree. I believe that the measure by which the value of any one Christian person's life is most accurately measured is how much we love. What's the measure of the value of a life, a Christian life? Do we love? How much do we love? Do we love like God loves? It's a question, a rhetorical question. And this evening, my intention is that we gather around 1 Corinthians 13, because I believe this is a passage of Scripture well worthwhile returning to from time to time that helps us to remember the main things, the big picture, to come for an MOT, if you like. If you've got a vehicle, you take it for the MOT. It gets checked up to make sure that it's being safe, safely taken along the road. We talk about an MOT in a health check, too. But 1 Corinthians 13 is a good health check, spiritually speaking, for our lives. And I'll read the chapter just now. Paul writes, if I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I'm only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If 
For I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge. And if I have a faith that can move mountains but do not have love, I'm nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and give over my body to hardship, that I may boast but do not have love, again, nothing. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It does not dishonor others. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails. For where there are prophecies, they will cease. Where there are tongues, they will be stilled. Where there is knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part. But when completeness comes, what is in part disappears. When I was a child, I talked like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I put the ways of childhood behind me. For now we see only a reflection as in a mirror. Then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part. Then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. Now these three remain, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. Believe that there is power in the grace of God, power in the Holy Spirit, for us to be transformed more and more through life into the greater likeness of Christ and to become better, as it were, the, the people that others potentially could give thanks for in the way that I've already described. People that would give thanks for us and remember us as the person who's shown them unconditional love. The commandments of God, the great commandments of God, Think about Ten Commandments and all the others, but the great commandments of God, if we were to summarize them, are in the great two commandments, or perhaps three. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus said this. This is the summary of the whole of the law. And it shouldn't surprise us that love is there, because God is love. And Jesus adds another to these. Love one another as I have loved you. The question is, do we want to be that kind of person? I would hope we do want to be that kind of person for someone else, to be to them in that way. And we would want others to be like that for us also. So why not get there first? Why not seek to be like that, as God can transform us in that way? We need, first of all, to be born of the Spirit. There's no, no, that's absolutely foundation to this. We cannot love like God loves in any, in any measure without the Holy Spirit. Romans chapter 5, verse 5 tells us, God has poured out his love into our hearts 
by the Holy Spirit whom he has given us. And so it is somehow a pouring in that takes place before there is a pouring out. There is human love, and we'll come to the different types of love soon, but divine love, there is something about this that is impossible unless we know the forgiveness of Christ. We're connected with God. We're born of the Holy Spirit. Our sins are forgiven. We've opened up our lives to the grace of God. We've asked him to fill us with the Holy Spirit because it is through the Holy Spirit that the fruits of the Spirit grow, and the fruit of the Spirit is love and joy and peace and all of the other descriptions that we have of that fruit which begins with love. So we need to be born of the Spirit. And there are two, I would imagine, two big questions, summarizing from Scripture, that we will be asked on the Day of Judgment. The first, of course, is what have you done with Jesus? What did you do about Jesus who died upon the cross for you? Did you receive him or did you reject him? Have you been forgiven? Have you asked for the forgiveness? Have you trusted in him? Are you trusting him in him? God will know that. That's the big question. Because at the day of judgment, we either stand or fall, depending on what we've done with Jesus. We know that. We cannot be such good people as to get into heaven. For our sins blight us. They're the big blot upon our lives. They are the one thing that uh, disqualifies us from heaven's glory. We couldn't, we couldn't handle heaven's glory in our sin. But God deals with our sin problem in Jesus. And so when we're forgiven, it's the first question, what have we done with Jesus? And if we're trusting him as Lord and Savior, then, and not trusting in our own righteousness, that's the wisest decision we ever make this side of eternity. So that we can go confidently before the throne of God's judgment, cleansed, forgiven, and made righteous in the righteousness of Christ who died in our place. But the second question is how much have you loved? We find it in Matthew's Gospel, and when the judgment is described here, we've got um, these words of, of the king who, uh, who comes to them, and the king will reply, uh, the righteous will answer him, Lord, was it here? let's begin with 34, when the king will say to those on, on his right, come, you who are blessed by my Father, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. For I was hungry and gave, you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you invited me in. I, need, I needed clothes and you clothed me. I was sick and you looked after me. I was in prison, you came to visit me. The righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry? And feed you on the, or, or thirsty and give you something to drink. When did we, when did we see you as a stranger and invite you in? We need clothes and clothe you. When did you, when did we visit, see you sick and in prison and go and visit you? And the king will reply, "Truly, I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me." It's a working out of our faith. It's not a theoretical faith. We're not just trying to find an easy way into heaven through trusting in Jesus. But uh, to be true kingdom people means being prepared for heaven. It means actually living as citizens of heaven here on earth. This is a strange land for us. 
as citizens of heaven. And we seek to live in the righteousness of Christ and, and love as He loved. Love is a description of the life of Christ. And the love that is described here in 1 Corinthians 13 is unique. It is the love of God that gave His one and only Son His very best as the only way of our salvation. I mean, what more could God have given except not only His Son, but His only beloved Son to go to such depths of pain and agony, and yet the Son is willing... Uh, we've got the Trinity here. Let's not get into the Trinity, but... This isn't a cruel thing of a son sending a, a father sending a son without a consensual kind of arrangement, but a son as eager to go as the father is willing to send. It is the measure, the measure of the sacrifice, the measure of the pain, the measure of the cost is also the measure of the love of God for us. That's the love that is described here. God so loved, so loved, the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life. This is, first of all, uh, a love that counts. It's a love that counts in more ways than one. There is a, I don't know who actually wrote this, it is anonymous, but I find it quite helpful it describes divine love, or God's love, or this kind of love. Love breaks the rules of mathematics. It says this, love is the one treasure that multiplies by division. It is the one gift that grows bigger the more you take from it. It is the one business in which it pays to be an absolute spendthrift. You can give it away, empty your pockets, shake the basket, <clears throat> turn the glass upside down, and tomorrow you will have more than ever. And in some ways it's visualized in the parable of the feeding of the 5,000, where the more they broke the bread and the more they gave away, the more they had. It's in the giving of it that it multiplies the counting of love, the mathematics of love. It is a love that gives. And there could have been no greater love than the love of God shown in Christ. More mathematics on love. 1 Corinthians 13 tells us that if we subtract love from any, or any number of the spiritual gifts that we can think of, we end up with zero. Doesn't matter how spiritually gifted we may think any person is, or perhaps we are, but if we subtract love from it, the Bible tells us we are nothing and we gain nothing. Gifts that are not used in love are of little or of no value, whatever that spiritual gift may be. First Corinthians there's a letter to a church that had discovered spiritual gifts. They didn't know how to handle them. And they missed the main point that spiritual gifts are for the building up of others. They're to be 
handled in love. They're to be used in love, applied in love, to encourage. Some of these were using the gifts like a, a clanging gong or a symbol that only draws attention to itself. Spiritual gifts exercised without love say, look what I can do. Look how significant I am. Look how clever I am. Or whatever it is, it's self-seeking. But a person uh, who has found their significance in God's love doesn't need to do that, doesn't need to find significance in any other way. They unselfconsciously love others, even through the gifts, whether it's a gift of encouragement or of helping people out, whether it is a, whatever kind of gift you can think of that's listed in the, in the New Testament and more. It's all done to worship God and to express a love for God and for others. A person born of the Holy Spirit and filled with the Holy Spirit is empowered by the Holy Spirit to exercise these gifts in truly unselfconscious ways in love. This is agape love. Divine agape love in us is the evidence of God's grace at work within us. And when we read about the life of Jesus from the cradle to the cross, his whole ministry, every one of his miracles, his parables, his teachings, his actions were all motivated by agape, love. And it was his intent that this divine love be reproduced in us, certainly in his disciples as he trained them, but certainly in us also. Any accountants here? If you ever do the accounts, the love accounts, what's the deficit? If you do your own accounts, what's the deficit? Is there a shortfall somewhere? How can that shortfall be made up? How can we balance the books? I think through a heart that is continually open to God's transforming grace, God's transforming love and a generous heart towards others. In the giving of love, there is the receiving of love. There is the multiplication of love. So 1 Corinthians 13 reads or describes not only a love that counts, it also describes a love that cares. A love that cares this description of love here in 1 Corinthians 13 isn't sentimental love. It's not wishy-washy kind of love. It's something unique. You probably know that the Greeks had different words for love. And if we were to analyze what this kind of love is in contrast to other kinds of love, then it brings out its, its value, its uniqueness. Eros was one of the, the words that the Greeks used for love. Well, we, that's love between the sexes. That's the kind of the mm, kind of love, if you want to put it that way. That's not the love that's described here. Then there's the storge word, storge, a natural affection of a parent for a child. You might call it the love. 
the patting on the head of a, a dog that comes in and looks at you with its big eyes, if you're a dog person and you like that. That feeling you get when you see the dog, it's not the same feeling that you'd have for a husband or a wife or a partner or a boyfriend, girlfriend. And then there's another word, philia. Let's call it this, this kind of love, friendship. Uh, who's, I hope you've got a, a good friend. I hope you've got a best friend somewhere. You think of the person that you would ring up if you're in trouble or if you just want a chat to somebody. Who's a friend of yours? It's not like the pat on the head or the looking across at somebody who's very attractive. Or even the, it's, it's, it's none of those things. It's, it's, it's different. But agape love is different to all of these. Agape love is, is this love. It's Christ upon the cross. It's outstretched arms. Experiencing a pain by which we measure the depth of his love for us. It's a self-giving love revealed in Christ who was prepared to go through pain and sacrifice in order to save others to save us. It's described here as a love that seeks the highest good of another person. It proceeds from feelings and attitudes that are transformed by the grace of God and are the fruit of the Spirit. This is the love. This is the love that is in you and I. It is there. It is to be expressed. It is to find root within us and to be shown in the way in which we live. Jesus lived it. It was a serving love. It was also a sacrificial love. Philippians chapter 2 says we, he took the form of a servant. So it's the beginning of Philippians 2. He took the form of a servant and humbled himself even unto death upon a cross. A servant, suffering, suffering servant. Seen in Isaiah as well, in the servant songs. So this love as described in 1 Corinthians 13 was shown in Jesus' life and example. It tells us that love is patient. It means that, what's patience? It's suffering injury without retaliation. Love is kind. The caring for others who are in need. Have you heard the prayer of the little girl that said, Lord, make the bad people good and make the good people kind? Little prayers like that can really hit home because we can be good, but we're not always kind. But the more we express the love of God in this, as it's described here, it's a kindness, there's a gentleness, there's a softness about it, not a harshness. It is without envy, refusing to be jealous. It is not proud, it's willing to be humble. It is not rude, it's careful with words. It is not self-seeking, but it thinks about others. It is not easily angered, 
keeps a cool head. He keeps no record of wrongs. I like that. Doesn't have a little notebook, a list of bad people, or what they have done to us, mental notes, all being tallied up. Keeps no record of wrongs. It's got a good shredder. I think of the words of the Lord Jesus upon the cross, Father, forgive them for they do not know what they're doing. Forgiveness is a difficult thing for many of us. We think, oh, if I start, if, I, if you hear a sermon on forgiveness, sometimes you think, oh, no, not another sermon on forgiveness, especially about this issue that I've been struggling with about the person I haven't spoken to for such and such and such a time, whatever it is, and uh, oh, how can I ever forgive a person? And the, the, sometimes we say foolishly, I will never forgive you or something. That's wrong to do that. I mean, we say in the Lord's Prayer, forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. Keeps no record of wrongs. And why is it we say that forgiveness is difficult? Because it's, sometimes we confuse it with the whole issue, I've got to feel good towards somebody. And that's not what forgiveness is. Sometimes we'll never change the feeling when we've suffered injustice, but we can still forgive. And if we think of anything in any other way, we can get locked into it, into a kind of a, a crisis where we, by we, we don't know, ever want to visit this place again in our heads because we think we've never forgiven. And you feel guilty about coming around the Lord's table because you're not sure that you've forgiven anybody. Even if you've said to God, I forgive them, I found, what I found helpful fairly recently, um, I'm a little bit nerdish about this, but if I'm in a church service and I'm listening to somebody preaching from the New Testament, I, I go onto my mobile and anybody can do this. Um, you don't need to know Greek for this, but you can actually go onto the Greek interlinear if you're online with a smartphone and you can follow the passage through and you've got the Greek words and, the, and, and what the Greek words actually mean in certain places. And I, I was doing this recently in a sermon, and I came across one word for forgiveness in the reading, and the preacher was preaching about forgiveness. And I checked this word out, which was used in two other places. And in one of the other places, it was translated by the word leave. And it's when Jesus said that he was going to leave them and the same word leave was the same word that was translated forgiveness in another place. I thought, that's good. You ever, has, any, has anybody ever said to you, leave it? It's when you just choose to leave it. You might not feel any more about it, but you decide you're not going to do anything with it. That's forgiveness. That's the strength of it there. Keeps no record of wrongs. Have you been struggling with something? You're not sure that you've actually forgiven something? Have you left it? Well, if you haven't left it now, just leave it. That's all that's involved. And it'll leave you. And you'll be able to move on. Keeps no record of wrongs. As we read this here, love is patient, love is kind, love is without envy, it's not proud, it's not rude, and so on. We could actually interpose, the, interpose here the word Jesus. Jesus is patient. Jesus is kind. Jesus is without envy. Jesus is not proud. Jesus is not rude. 
Jesus is not self-seeking. Jesus is not easily angered. Jesus keeps no record of wrongs. How would we get on with the test? We'll put our name in there. Just put your own name in there. Jenny or Jimmy or whatever it is, is is patient, is kind, is without envy, is not proud, is not rude, is not self-seeking, is not easily angered. Jimmy keeps no record of wrongs. Whatever your name is there. How do you stand up to it? If we're honest, perhaps not very well. Certainly not like Jesus. And certainly not like 1 Corinthians 13. If we're really honest, we can't. we'd love to be there. We'd love to say, yeah, I'm it. I've reached it. I've managed it. I'm doing it. But looking in 1 Corinthians is like looking in a mirror when you've got a dirty face. All you see is, oh dear, I need to do something about this. It's humbling. But we can make it our goal, our constant goal, and our aim to be changed, to be more loving towards others in our relationships, especially those who matter to us, through opening up our hearts to God's grace. These are about action, not feeling. So 1 Corinthians 30 makes it clear that love does not only count, love does not only care, but agape love also continues. Is that going to change? Or whether this is timed out on me. Wait, got it. Love counts, love cares. I've got Romans 12 verses 9 to 16 there. I didn't actually read that. But it does show that it's action that's described here. I'll read that just before I move on to this third point, Romans 12, 9 to 16. Love must be sincere, hate what is evil, cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in love. Honor one another above yourselves. Never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor, serving the Lord. Be joyful in hope, patient in in affliction, faithful in prayer. Share with the Lord's people who are in need. Practice hospitality, and so it goes on. But it's all about action. It's about the things we do. Andrew Murray once said something that wrote something very memorable. We build the forms of holiness, and God fills them. We build the forms of holiness, and God fills them. What did he mean by that? It's when we act, when we begin to live out our Christianity, that all of a sudden we find that we've opened up a door to God, whereby his love finds a greater home and we, have, we develop a greater capacity as we begin to live out our Christianity in action. It counts, it cares, it also continues. Love never fails, it says here. In other words, love outlasts everything else. How will we answer on the day of judgment. Even for listening to this sermon, how will I answer to God for this? As I have the greater responsibility as someone who preaches and teaches. By acknowledging, I suppose, 
that we fall short of this, but desiring to be changed more and more into the likeness of Christ and to be the person that others may remember as the one who, from whom they felt love like that from no other. Those who are close enough to us to warrant it. Peter was challenged by Jesus with the question, do you love me? He asked him three times, do you love me? Interesting that when you see the language that's being used there, I think in the first two times Jesus says, do you love me? He's using the word agape. And Peter says, you know that I love you. Do you know the word he's using? Philia, my friend. He's a bit humbled after saying, all the other disciples deny you. I will never leave. I'll, I'll never leave you. I'm your man. They can run away if they like. I won't. And true enough to the words of Jesus, the cock crows after he's denied Jesus three times and he, he weeps bitterly and he goes fishing and he's feels a heel and he can't bring himself to say yes I, I love you like that I think the third time Jesus brings it down to philia but he's changed by the grace of God I was listening to my son preach on this passage of Peter or the character of Peter this morning reminded what he was saying about how through the restorative grace of Jesus and the power of the Spirit at Pentecost that Peter became the person who eventually gave his life when he faced the test a second time. But only by the grace and the power of God was he able to do that. To say through his actions that he really loved Jesus. Love is described as something that is greater than hope or even faith. Why would love be greater than faith or hope? Now these three remain, faith, hope, and love. The greatest of these is love. Because it's the one thing that will remain in eternity. In eternity, we won't need faith because that for which we have believed has been fulfilled, that for which we have trusted has come into being. Neither will we need hope, that sense of anticipation, because what we have expected and anticipated and eagerly longed for has arrived. But love will be there. Love never fails. No, love never ends. It's, it's always there. God is love. This word perfection or totality, uh, how is it described in 1 Corinthians 13 here? Towards the end, in this particular translation, it's when, uh, which verse is it? In completeness. But when completeness comes, totality, this is uh, clearly a description of the 
of, the, uh, of heaven itself. It's not, some people have looked at this and thought it's, it's the scriptures that are being described here. It's not the scriptures, that's not a way to exegete the scriptures. There is nothing to say within the scriptures that spiritual gifts were to be withdrawn from the church. There's nothing that's not justified. It's not true to say that. Although God could, as a sovereign God, withdraw gifts if he wishes to. Some may have been withdrawn, certainly, when we look at the early apostles and the sign gifts. Uh, they're not as in evidence as they were, as we read in the New Testament times. Though, when we hear stories of around the world, there is evidence that they are very much still with us. But it's not what's being described here. Totality, perfection, completeness is when Christ comes again, is when the church is raptured, is when a new creation, a new heaven and earth have, uh, have been uh, formed, is when the, the day of judgment is past, is when is, this is describing the glory of paradise, of eternity, in the presence of God. Love remains. Faith and hope and love. Greatest is love. So it's our MOT. How do we do as we seek to balance the books? What's the deficit? Is how big is the shortfall? God is love. Love are the greatest commandments of all. Something not to forget, something not to lose sight of, something not to be lost in the minutiae of life, the details of a Christianity, our understanding of doctrine, our everyday living, the big picture, the weighty commandments to love God with all our heart, soul, mind and strength, love our neighbours as ourselves and love one another as Jesus loved us, are those that are the most important of all, those which we can grow into, those through which we can be remembered as those who show loving kindness to others they will never, ever forget. And a love that we will be judged by on how we put it into action as part of a pattern of living that becomes part of a character of our being. Father, we do thank you for your word and we feel humbled as we look once again into Scriptures, we do feel and know that we fall short. We want to be in denial about this and, and say we love more than we really do. I wish we could say that. But Lord, your word says, he who covers his sins will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes them will find mercy. Forgive us, Lord, for the times when we have not left it, when we've held something against someone else, when we have not acted in kindness towards others than we ought to have done. And we open up our hearts to your grace afresh and pray, Lord, that we might be baptized once again in the Holy Spirit. 
and that we may be empowered and motivated to be transformed through your grace day by day, more into the likeness of Jesus, that we may love, not just in word or thought, but in affection and in action. In Jesus' name, amen.